Let's bow our hearts. Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity once again to come and to do what we were created to do, to worship you, to exalt you, to come and have our hearts knit once again to you. Lord, it's an amazing thing that when Adam ate of the fruit, that he was separated. And from that point on, all of us have been just spiritually dead. And it was what you did, Jesus, your work on the cross, that made us alive again. That now we are born of the Spirit. Now we are born again into a right relationship and we can commune with you. And Lord, you have given us this privilege that, Lord, we can knit our hearts to you. And isn't that just so often, Lord, how when we have these privileges, we fail to take full advantage of what they are. And so we're asking this morning that you would show us, show us what do we have, Lord, because of what you've done. What, what are our resources when we no longer have to feel guilt and shame with it, that our sins have been forgiven? Jesus, when you were on the cross, you said it was finished. You meant it was finished. Nothing more has to be done. We can rejoice in what you've done. Not, not, not take pity in what we've done, but rejoice truly in what you've done. So we ask that you admit our hearts to you this morning. Give your word life and then knit it to our hearts and knit it in our minds that, Father, we wouldn't just hear, we wouldn't just learn, but we would apply these things and our, our truly our walks would be changed drastically because of the truths that you through your spirit will reveal to us here this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. All right, saints, if you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 22. On Wednesday, we covered through this portion, and so we were able to just look to it and, and see what it was that, that God had um, wanted to speak to us. And now what we want to do is this. We want to actually come to this place of, of seeing what God wants to knit our hearts with him. Keep in mind that in verse 22, what we're looking at is, is simply this, that it declares this. David says to Abiathar, I know, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, and I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. This is what was happening in David's mind. Now, we know that basically, as, as he says, I have caused the death. It's not quite as cut and dry as that. It's not just simply where David said, I'm the one that did the cause the death. Now, remember what had happened, that in chapter 22, it begins that David has just left the king of the Philistines. And as he's left the king of the Philistines, David now comes and he, he hides in this cave of Adullam. And as he's there in that cave, amazingly, he senses he's alone. He senses he's alone. And, and I find this unique. Now, I want to preface with this. Saul can't find David. He has no idea where David's at. And he's, he's, he's just scratching his yarmulke, trying to figure out where in the world is this guy. I, I don't know. But while David is in that cave, amazingly, it says his family comes to see him. 400 men who are in distress in debt and in discontented, they find him in the cave. The prophet Gad, he finds him in the cave. So you understand that David has now left this place of Gath where he was there carrying the sword of Goliath. 
He's been the one that the Philistines had sung that song, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands, and now he's there in Gath. But while he's there in Gath, he panics. He panics, he's not sure what to do. He thought that he could just go in there and hide, but in the Psalms it actually says that he was captured and brought before the king. It doesn't say it here, it just says he was brought before the king. But when David wrote his Psalms, he said, I was captured and I was brought. And then he's like, now he's panicking once again. Now he's just fled from one king, King Saul, trying to do everything he can to stay alive. And now he he leaves another king. He leaves the king of Gath. But this time, understand, when he leaves the king of Gath, everything changes. Because he realized it wasn't me pretending that I was nuts. Because there, when he was before the king of Gath, he pretended madness. He feigned madness. In his own craftiness or his own fear, he began to scratch at the post. He began to let spittle run down his beard. Take a look at 1 Samuel 21, verse 13, just so you can see what he was doing. It said, so he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands. He scratched on the doors of the gate, and he let saliva fall down on his beard. Now, if I was up here drooling, and, and just letting it fall down and scratching the pulpit, you'd say, you know what? We need to find another church. Lowell's lost it, and, and it's okay. We'll, we'll find somewhere else. But, but they, they thought, you know what? This guy's insane. And, and the king of said, what do I want with a crazy man? It really would do no good for me to, to wipe him out, to kill him, because there's no satisfaction. He's already nuts. So, so, so what do I need to do? Just, just get rid of him. And when David leaves, and I love what he recognizes in the psalm, he says, God, you delivered me. You're the one who's done this work. And I don't have to fear man. I don't have to fear man because what I need to do is I need to come and, and I put my fear, I, need to, I put my trust, put my faith in you. You're going to deliver me. And he realizes that it was God who delivered him from Saul because you know that, right? Remember last week we were talking about it because on two weeks ago we taught that there was David. He left Saul. He went to Samuel the prophet. And while he was there before Samuel the prophet, Saul sent men. He sent men to say, you need to go capture David. So he sent this group of warriors. And when they came to Samuel and the prophets who were having a worship service, these men, they begin to enter into the worship. So Saul sends another group of warriors. They too became worshipers. He sends another group of warriors. They too became worshipers. Every group of warriors that he sends to take David and bring him back become worshipers. So Saul says, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. So what does he do? Saul goes. He goes to get David. And before he even gets there, the Spirit of God comes upon him, changes his heart, and he begins to prophesy. He begins to worship. And then when he gets before Samuel and the prophets, God humbles Saul. Saul strips himself of his, of his kingly garments. He prostrates himself on the floor all night and all day. Now, you think about this. Here's David running from a king that is now basically just in his, his underclothes now. He's laying on the ground and he's prophesying. He's worshiped. David doesn't even have to run. He's like, this guy, he's not going to kill me. He's there before the Lord. The power of God and and what God can do to save me has now been proven. But yet, he still runs from him. 
He runs after he, he goes home and, and, and Saul tries to kill Jonathan, his son, because he's now saying, David, I know you're the king. I know God has called you to be the king. But Saul doesn't want that. Saul doesn't want to leave. And so we see here that when David goes to Nob, he goes to a, a place that's about two miles away from leaving Saul. He comes into a knob, which is the city of the priest. Look in our, our, our text, chapter 22, verse 19. Also knob the city of the priest. He comes to that city. It was about two miles away. And when he comes to the city, he goes to the, 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 the priest there. And as he goes to the priest, he, he, he makes the statement. He says, Ahimelech, do you have any food on hand? He said, well, I got some bread. You can have some bread. It was holy. And as long as and David said, listen, me and the guys, the guys are out here. He doesn't say that he's alone. He doesn't say that he's running from Saul. He literally says that the king has sent me on some urgent business. And the king said, don't tell anybody what you're doing. David lies to Ahimelech. He lies to him. And when he's there trying to get the provisions and he lies to Ahimelech, eventually what happens is that there's this man, Doeg, who's there. And David, in, in our text, says, I knew when I saw Doeg the Edomite, I knew what would happen. I knew that he'd go and he'd tell Saul. So what happened was this, that Saul... In chapter 22, and we learned about this on Wednesday, that he went and he called Ahimelech. And he says to Ahimelech, when, when Doeg says, man, no, Ahimelech was there. Ahimelech was there. And he was, he literally inquired of the Lord for David. And he gave him bread. He gave him the sword of Goliath. Some was true and some was a lie because he did give him bread. He did give him the sword, but he never inquired of the Lord. And so Doeg lies. And Saul takes his lies and he amplifies that lie. And what happens is this. Saul is so incensed, he's so paranoid that David is going to be the king that what Saul does, he asks his servants, kill the priest. Now, keep in mind, Himmelet comes with 85 guys. And, and not only does Saul tell his servants, kill the priest, no one moves. No one, I'm not going to kill a priest. I'm not going to do that. It's something about the mindset of when you have a man of God that you sort of change your behaviors. You know, you can kill a person, you can kill a Philistine, but you can't kill the priests. For whatever reason, they change and say, we're not going to do that for you, Saul. A lot of things will do. Killing priests is not one of them. And then this is what happened. He looks at Doeg and says, would you do it? And Doeg does. And not only does he kill the priest, and, and, and take a look at verse 18. The king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priest. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And look at verse 19. Also Nob, the city of priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Not only did the, the priest that went with Ahimelech die, but all the priests of Nob and their wives and their children and their nursing children, babies, and their livestock. Saul literally wiped out an entire city of priests and their families. And David, when he hears news of this, because what happens, Abiathar, one of the sons of Ahimelech, he escapes, the only guy that escapes. And he comes, he finds David. He says, listen, Saul's trying to, he's, he's wiped out all of them. And David now in his guilt, and this is where verse 22, David says to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. So keep in mind, it's not quite as cut and dry as you would think. It's not just quite where David took out a sword and he killed them. Really, the, the, the causing of the death, who caused the death? 
And I want you to understand that when the, this cause of death is, is an important thing, and, and why it's an important principle is this. David has to deal with the cause of death on this plane right now in the Old Testament, dealing with the death of all the priests. How many times has the enemy, Satan, come and accused you of saying, your sin, you're guilty of the death of the great high priest. Your death caused Jesus to go to the cross. Your sin caused Jesus to go to the cross. You should feel so horrible. You should feel so bad. And what happens? Well, the bottom line is, it's a truth, but it's not quite as cut and dry as you think. And I think it's important to look at this principle that David goes through and how David has to relate to it and how we can see the truths of David. And then that will allow us to see the truths of us. Because when it comes to communion, I love what God does with us. See, in, in, in too many places of worship, communion becomes a place of introspection. Communion becomes a place of sadness. Communion becomes, communion becomes a place of, oh, I've sinned and I'm so horrible, Lord. And, and, and you had to die and it's all because of me. It's all because of my sin. And communion becomes just this place of grief. And yet what we do is this. We take the word for what it says. And when Jesus says, when you, when you take of this bread, he says, do it in remembrance of me, not, not you. He says, also after supper, he took the cup. And he says, the cup is a new covenant in my, my blood. And not as often as you, you, you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. You understand that he says, I want communion to be a different perspective. And so when we look at this, this passage where David says, I have caused the death, and we look at the reality of it, then we're going to apply that to us spiritually in the death of Jesus Christ and how communion should be for us so that you can understand. I'm not just trying to sell you something. We're looking at the scripture and say, this is the evidence. These are, are what scripture teaches. Now apply this to what happens in the New Testament. So causing the death. Who caused the death? Well, keep in mind that David was in a way partly responsible. He was. Why? Well, the reality is he went to Nob. He did go there. He did stop and he asked for provisions. And not only did he ask for provisions of food, but he asked for what? I need a weapon. You got a weapon? Yeah, we got the sword of Goliath, the one that you took off the guy. And, and amazingly, what we see is this. That David himself going and getting that was, was not so bad, but he did take actions and he did do that. And then David lied. Rather than David coming to Ahimelech says, listen, I'll be honest with you. I am running for my life. Saul is trying to kill me and I'm fleeing. And, and as I'm, I'm about to leave into the wilderness, I have no food. I have no weapons. And rather than speaking the truth, he lies. He lies. And I want you to understand that it was that lie that caused David this guilt and the shame. It was, let's put it this way, it was the sin that he did that caused him the guilt and the shame. And then what he did is he focuses on his sin, he focuses on his guilt, he focuses on his shame. Now, we understand that David did come and, and that he did lie. But remember now, that's not the initial thing. That's not what caused this whole thing. Remember, 
in 1 Samuel chapter 15. We were there, and in chapter 15, something wonderful is, is opened up. Because we realize that Saul, the first king, is removed from being the king. In verse um, 24 of chapter 15, Saul comes to Samuel. Now, now what happens is Saul, Samuel has already gone to Saul. He says, listen, this is what I want you to do. Back in verse um, 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel 15, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over the people, over Israel. Now, therefore, hear the, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek. In verse 3, he says, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant, nursing, child, oxen, sheep, and camel, and donkey. You have to understand that what God wanted Saul to do was to become his steward, become an instrument of me. Now, we know what happened with, with Israel and Amalek, how there in chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, they were going through the wilderness, and as they were going through the wilderness, what happened was this, that, that Amalek would begin to pick off the rear people. Anyone who was slow, Amalek would go, and he'd, he'd kind of pick them off. And then what was happening is, is that, that God says, okay, we're going to deal with it. You're now in this, this one area. And as you're there in this area, as the children of Israel had come and, and they're now in the, the wilderness of sin, eventually what happens is this. God in chapter 17 tells Moses, he says, I want you to go onto the top of the hill and I want you to intercede for the children of Israel. And of course, you know Aaron and Hur go with him. Now, Joshua is supposed to fight against the Amalekites. And every time that Moses raises up his rod in intercession, Joshua and the men become victorious and they start winning. When Moses' arms gets tired and the intercession slows down, then the Amalekites start winning and Joshua begins to lose. So we realize although there's a physical battle going on, there's another spiritual battle behind it. So in other words, multi-layers. Now, within this, Aaron and Hur realize, Moses, you can't do this by themselves. So they put a rock down, set Moses on the rock, and they hold up Moses' hands while Moses is holding up the rod. And as they continue to hold up his hands, guess what happens? Joshua wins. And then God tells Moses this. He says, I want you to write this down and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. Joshua needs to know. Because what happens is this, within this area of the uh, Amalekites, God makes this statement. And it, it's a powerful statement. In Exodus 17, verse 14, I just want to read it to you. Jot it down if you're a note taker. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. God says, because of what they've done to my children, you don't mess with the father's kids. And so he says, I'm going to deal with them. Well, eventually he uses or he wants to use Saul as his instrument to fulfill the promise. And he says, these people are utterly despised in my eyes and in my heart, and I want them totally gone. And isn't it interesting where Samuel tells Saul in chapter 15, wipe out the men, the women, the children, the infants, 
and all the animals because Amalekite is despised. We see the same thing happen that Saul did to Nob. Look at verse 19 again. Also in Nob, the city of priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children, nursing infants, oxen, donkeys, and sheep with the edge of the sword. To Saul, the priests, their families, the city was despised. Do you understand how paranoid Saul is now that he's literally, everything is despised. And so keep in mind that before anything happens, Saul should be removed as the king. He shouldn't even be the king. God literally goes to Saul through Samuel, and he makes this statement. Chapter 15, verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have also transgressed the commandment of the Lord. And your words, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. Return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you. Note this from being king over Israel. You're no longer the king. Well, Samuel turned around to go, verse 27, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So you understand what happens now. Saul should not be the king. So he should not be in control. He shouldn't be able to tell Doeg or anyone killed the priest because he's not the king. But yet he's holding on to this kingdom that is not his. He doesn't believe that he's a steward and that it's God's kingdom. And God will give it to whom he wants, to what degree he wants, when he wants. That's God. Do you understand that when it comes to God and his provisions, all we are is stewards. I'm not the head of this church. God is. I'm a steward here. I'll be faithful while he calls me here. And then when he moves me on, then I'll move on. Someone else will come and they'll be faithful. It's about stewardship. Everything that you have is not yours. Why? It's God's. He's allowed you to be a steward of all that you have. Glorify God with your body, with your soul, with everything that you have because we're stewards. But this is something here that Saul didn't understand. He said, it's my kingdom. No one's going to take it, not even God. And so through that, he has this paranoia because God stopped speaking to Saul. He no longer speaks to Saul, not through the prophets, not through anyone. And the only one that speaks to, to Saul spiritually is a distressing spirit. And oh my goodness, is that one ever getting through? Saul himself was so paranoid. He's so confused. He's so frightened about David coming and taking the kingdom that God says, listen, David's not taking the kingdom. I've given it to David. Jonathan knows that. Saul knows that. Even the Philistines knew that he was the king of Israel. Saul is the only one that refused to do that. So understand, who's responsible? Well, Saul should not even be in the position to give the command. And at the same time, we see that here, Saul is the one that, yeah, I, I am the one that shouldn't be here. I'm the one that making the command. But also then we see the next instant was what? Well, David lying to the priest. There in chapter 21, verse 2, it makes this statement. David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I've commanded you, that I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Do you understand? Not only does he say that me and the king, we're okay. God sent me on, the king sent me on business. 
And the king actually said, do you understand he's putting words in his mouth? The king actually said, I want David dead. That's what the king said. But he says, no, the king said, don't tell anyone about the business. This is kind of hush, hush. You need to go, you and the men. And then he says this in verse eight, David said to him, like, is there not here a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. I was in such a hurry. The king needed this done right away. I didn't even have time to get bread. I didn't have time to get a sword because the king's business required haste. Now keep in mind, he said what? I made haste to get out of there because the king wanted to kill me. That required haste. The king was in such a hurry to kill David. They were like, I got to get out of here. But it's still a lie. So you understand that first the king shouldn't be there as a king. Saul should be removed. David shouldn't have lied, but he wouldn't have had to lie if, if he wasn't being pursued. But he chose to lie. He takes responsibility for what he did. And then Doeg. Understand what happens. Doeg himself is going to really add to the situation. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 10. I want to read 9 and 10 just so you kind of have an idea of what's happening because Saul is saying, does anyone feel sorry for me? Can someone tell me where David is? And then verse 9 of chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, Doeg the Edomite answers, who was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, which is true. He did. He saw Jesse there. And then it says this, and this is a lie. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistines. Now, the one thing is a lie. He inquired of the Lord. That never happened. As a matter of fact, we know it didn't happen because there in verse 15, here's Ahimelech's answer to Saul. He said, did I then inquire of the Lord for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. He said, that's a lie. He said, yeah, I, I gave him provision. I did. I gave him the sword. I did. But understand that everything that I knew, the truth of what I knew is what? You and David weren't on outs. He would come to your house and he would worship. You made him captain over your armies. You would send him out and he acted faithfully. You actually gave him your daughter as a wife. He's your son-in-law. I didn't know you wanted to kill him. And so everything he said, I thought you guys were fine. I didn't know nothing, any little or much of anything that was going on. All I knew is David had a need and I, I helped him out. I thought I was helping you out because he said he was on your business. Who am I really helping? I'm helping David, yes, but I'm helping you because it's your business. He said he was doing this for you. I'm not against you, O king. I'm not against you. But what happens is this. Doeg, he lies. And in verse 10, he said, he inquired of the Lord for him. Now what happens is this. When Doeg said that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord, Saul takes that lie and he amplifies it. Take a look really at verse 13, because Saul says to Ahimelech, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, that you have given him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Understand here what's in Saul's mind. 
that he said, not only did you, Ahimelech, go before the Lord for David, but you're asking God this, how can David kill Saul? How can he lie in wait for Saul? How can he take the kingdom by force? This is what Saul is thinking. He's thinking that here Ahimelech is helping David go before the Lord because God isn't speaking to Saul. Maybe he's speaking to David and Ahimelech is going before the Lord and says, how can David take my kingdom by force? Do you understand? This justifies Saul's behavior to do what? Let's kill David. Why? Because he wants to take my kingdom by force. David doesn't want anything. He's running. He's like, listen, God, you've given me the kingdom and I'll take it, but you put me in there. Eventually, we'll read just coming up in the next couple of weeks that David says, I will not lift my hand before the Lord's anointed. I won't do anything to Saul. If God wants him out, God will take him out. Why? Because David knows it's not his kingdom. It's still God's. The nation of Israel is still God's. And yes, God has put David as king over it. But if God wants David to rule it, then guess what? God, you remove Saul and you put me in. I'm not going to force it. And even when his son comes and says, I'm going to take the kingdom after David begins to reign. When his son comes, Absalom, David does what? He just leaves. He says, if you want to give it to Absalom, give it to Absalom. If you want to bring me back, you bring me back. I love what David does. He recognizes it's not his kingdom. It's God's. And he'll be a steward over as long as God puts him over it. And now we see here that it was first, yeah, Saul shouldn't be the king. Yes, David lied. Doeg the Edomite lies right to King Saul. Saul takes that lies and he amplifies it. And then notice what happens here in verse 17. Verse 16, the king says, you shall surely die. When he says, I didn't know anything. And then he says this, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. Not only am I going to kill you, but I'm going to kill your father's house. And then he kills all the rest of the priests. And then he kills all the women. He kills the nursing infants. Saul is so paranoid that he thinks if I kill Ahimelech, then another priest is going to come and be on David's side. Do you realize he thinks no one is for me? Everyone's against me. And so not only does he think that Ahimelech went before the Lord inquiring David, now he thinks the next priest or the next priest or maybe one of the priest's wives or maybe a children's grow up, they're going to become a priest. He's so paranoid. He says, not only Ahimelech, but also the father's house. And then in verse 17, the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. So they said they're on David's side. And then he said this, because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. They didn't know. They had no idea what was going on. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priest of the Lord. So the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priest. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priest and killed them. On that day, 85 men who wore the linen ephod. This is what we begin to see. Who killed the priest? Well, one, it was Saul who gave the command. Saul said, kill the priest. Now the other guy said, we're not killing him. There's no way. But then Doeg the Edomite says, oh, I'll take this on. I'll kill the priest. Isn't that amazing? Who killed the priest? Well, in verse 19, it's interesting because it says also in Nob, the city priest, he struck with the edge of the sword. Is that Doeg or is that Saul? We don't know. The context means it might have been Doeg, but it was Saul who gave the command. Or we don't know that it was Saul who went and did the work. We see here this entire incident happen, and yet... When they said to kill them, keep in mind, David was not physically involved. 
Note that somewhere in your notes, David was not physically involved. There was a layer in which, yeah, I was here and I had to sin and the sin was part of what happened, but I'm not the one who actually took the sword and killed. I wasn't physically the one who did that. And so, so think about this. David's sin was part of the reason, and although he didn't physically take the sword, he was part of it, although he was the only one who took any responsibility. He was the one who said, man, I had sin, and because of my sin, this is, this is part of the reason of what happened. And, and, and I love the, the fact that when you take a look at the death of Jesus Christ, what about my sin? What about your sin? Well, well, keep in mind, and all honestly, that, that, that the enemy would love for you and me to just stop there. That my sin was the reason he went to the cross. My sin. He died for my sin. It was my sin that put him there. It was my sin that held him there. But, but, but keep in mind that what we see is this so beautifully, that when, when it comes to this, the enemy wants us to stop there. It's my sin, what I've done, and what I'm doing. Now, keep in mind that in my own heart, I'm like, I know, I know my sin brought him there, and I don't want to add any more sin into my life. I know what that sin did, so I'm not going to practice sin. I'm not going to go into sin because what? I know what that sin did. It drove Jesus to the cross. But at the same time, it's only part of the reason for Jesus' death. You understand? Multi-layers. Multi-layers. And, and so it just isn't as cut and dry. And so when you think, why did Jesus die? The enemy says, it was your sin. It was your sin. It was your sin. I want to give you another answer. Why did Jesus die? Here, here's my answer. Love. Love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Another passage, jot it down if you're a note taker. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 makes this declaration. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You understand? His death, my sin was a layer, but his death was what? Love. Why did Jesus die? Love. So when you come to communion and you say, why am I taking communion? Do you understand what this is a demonstration of? It's a demonstration of love. Now, what do you do with a demonstration of love? Well, I'll be honest with you. Usually a demonstration of love is kind of a celebration. It really is. I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding. Now, now what happens in weddings is this. A lot of tears, like funerals, but they're not sad tears. They're happy tears. And, and so when they're there, there's a celebration afterwards. Like, yay, this is great. It's this declaration of love. And everybody's celebrating that declaration of love. Do you understand what communion is? It's a declaration of love. And, and, and keep in mind that it's, it's a, this declaration that God so loved the world that he gave his son. That while it's a declaration of God's love that he says it was because of this love, God demonstrates his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Do you understand what's happening here? So, so keep in mind that, that it's both a, a spiritual and this physical part of Jesus' death. So multi-layers. Now, now, when it comes to us, and, and so keep in mind that, that all who, are, who have sinned, which is everyone, are guilty in some ways of 
Jesus going to the cross. There's all this, we have some part to play in it. Yet, let's look at the bigger picture. Just, just think about this for just a second. As we look at the bigger picture, Jesus created Adam. He did. And he gave Adam a commandment. Don't eat of the tree. For the day that you eat of it, what? You shall truly die. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't touch it, don't eat it. Because the day that you eat of it, you're going to be spiritually separated from me. And I don't want that. Because what God wanted was this. He wanted man to be ruled by his spirit. And he wanted to be the one who ruled man's spirit. Do you understand that that's how that works? That when you do something in the spirit and you do something that's good, who do you think does that? Do you think it's you? No, it's God who's you're allowing. Rule my spirit. Let my spirit rule me. And when you do anything good, you realize what? It's not me. It was the Lord. It was his spirit. It was his word. It's him. It's always him. No matter what I do, I can't take credit. It's him. Because what? All I can do is give myself over to the spirit. Let the spirit rule me. And when the spirit rules me, God rules the spirit. And this is the beautiful thing about what we begin to see. Understand that, that here, Jesus created Adam. Adam sinned. Now, when Adam sinned, he now lost that spiritual connection with God, and he passed on that genetic flaw of being separated from God. And so what happens is all of us take on a sin nature. And that's what the sin nature means. It simply means that we are separated from God. It's the nature of death. It's the nature of we can't be tuned in with God. So what does he do? He allows Jesus to die in our stead. He goes to the cross instead of me. He sheds his blood instead of me. He's separated from the Father so that I can come and have this relationship with the Father. And when he dies, when he goes to the cross, when he sheds his blood, guess what happens? Anyone who puts their faith in him is forgiven. And then, amazingly, God forgives the sin. You understand that in God's eyes, the sin is no more. In God's eyes, every time that he looks at a book, and he sees the rights and the wrongs that you have done. And let's just focus on the wrongs. He sees all the wrongs that you have done. It says penalty, 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 penalty. But right next to penalty, it says paid in full, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. So when God looks at the sin, it says, is there anything that Lowell owes? Is there anything that you owes? There's nothing. Why? Because Jesus said it was finished. Do you understand that the God, he sees there's nothing on our accounts. There's nothing. And so when he dies and he wipes out our sin, Keeps in mind, he doesn't wipe out our, our, our sin nature. He doesn't wipe out that, that flesh of us. We still have the flesh, but now we have the spirit that can war against that flesh. We have the spirit that can have victory over that flesh. It all depends on which one you feed. All depends on which one you go for. And what we see is this. So amazingly, we understand that when they ate of the tree of, of good and evil, Adam sinned. And what he did is he passed on that sin nature to his descendants and so on and so on and so on until what? Until it comes to us. Isn't it amazing how you take on certain characteristics of those who've come before you? I don't know if you've ever heard someone say, wow, you look just like your uncle. You look just like your grandpa. You look just like your dad. You know, there's someone in your family that, that you resemble. Why? Genetics? Well, guess what? There's a genetic that nobody sees on the spiritual realm. There's a genetic that all of us are tuned into Adam. We have a sin nature and we're separated from God. 
until we receive the work of Jesus Christ. And then we only then can we be connected. And so this is what we see. Are we involved in the death of Jesus? Spiritually, yes. But guess what? I didn't ask for the sin nature. I was just born with the sin nature. It was given to me from my dad. Everyone, the, Adam passed on his sin nature to the sons, and the sons pass on the, the sin nature to the sons, and to the sons, and to the sons, and to the sons. And it's an amazing thing. And women, you're going to love this, because the sin nature is passed on through the father, not the mother. This is incredible. Now, now, why does God do that? Well, think about this for just a second. Let's back it up to just one, one woman. Her name was Mary. She was born with this in nature. She got it from her dad, from Eli. But now what happens is this, that when Mary is about to have a child, guess what? The Holy Spirit comes upon her. She has a child, and this child is born without a sin nature. Jesus is God. He's the second Adam. He's the last Adam. And so amazing, he's born without, and guess what he does? He doesn't sin. He even goes out in the wilderness for 40 days, not in the Garden of Eden where everything's great, and then sins in this garden of lush and life, he goes into the wilderness where there's barren and death. And absolutely amazing that what we see is this, that Jesus is in that place of death and he does not sin. And I want you to ponder this for just a second. Here's Adam in the garden and everything is life. Everything is spiritual. Everything is wonderful and green. And God speaks to Adam about death. He says, in the day that you eat of this, you're going to die. Everything's perfect. He's in the garden. He's in a place of life. And God speaks to him about death. And guess what? I love that because you and I are in a world that is death and darkness and sin. And what does God speak to us? He speaks to us about life. He comes and says, listen, I want to tell you about life. There's a passage. I just want to read it to you. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning verse 15, God says, I have set before you today life and good and death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgment that you may live. In verse 19, he says, I call heaven and earth as witness against you that I have set before you today life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Isn't that amazing? He was in a place of life and God's warned him about death. We're in a place of death and God says, hey, I can give you life. This is what we celebrate. When we come to communion, we're not celebrating death. We're celebrating life. And so absolutely amazing that we do realize that what? You and I are spiritually involved. We have a sin nature and we sin. So what does that mean? Well, we'll keep in mind that although we're spiritually involved, we're not physically involved with his death. We know those who were physically involved with the death. The, the whole situation opens up. And if you would, turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 11. Because in John chapter 11, you guys know the passage. This is where, where Lazarus is sick. And then they tell Jesus, come quickly. And he waits around for a few days. And Lazarus is dead in the tomb for four days. And, and they realize where Jesus says, hey, you know, I, I know that through you, you could have made him well, but whatever you choose to do, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And then, of course, he says that amazing words, Lazarus comes forth and Lazarus comes out. Well, amazingly, when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, it, it declares this in verse 45 of John chapter 11. 
than many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Check this out for just a moment. Pause in your reading and, and pay attention because what happens is this. Jesus raises a man from the dead. Now, rather than celebrating and says, oh my goodness, here is the one that has done good. He's preached the gospel to the poor. He's healed. He's done miracles verifying who he is. And so rather than celebrating with the Pharisees and the religious leaders that here's a man that can raise people from the dead, look at verse 47 of John 11. Then the chief priests, those who were the chief ones, and the Pharisees gathered a council together and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If everyone says the Messiah is here, the Messiah is here, we're going to lose our place. We can't keep the people in check. And, and the, the Romans are going to come. They're going to wipe out us. They're not going to let us be priests. Everything's going to change. Now, keep in mind what they were saying is what we want our position. We don't want to lose our position. Absolutely amazing that Jesus had shared a parable about what these guys were going through. It was the parable of, of the, the, the landowner, the one who rented out a vineyard to stewards. And eventually he says, hey, I, I want what's mine. He says, no, no, no. When he sends someone, his servants, they kill the servants. They treat the servants wrongly. And so that what they did with all the prophets of God. When they, God says, hey, I'm going to tell you a word. I'm going to tell you a word. I want your hearts. I want your hearts. If you can't have it, the, the fruit is mine. It's all mine. He says, well, then he says, what? I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send my son. They're going to respect my son. And then what do they do? Let's kill the heir. Let's kill the heir because if we kill the heir, guess what? Then, then the inheritance is ours. We don't have to change. And this is what Jesus, he goes and he does good. And all of a sudden they come away and they're saying, oh my goodness, what do we do? Everyone's going to believe in him. This guy is so good in his signs that it's like he's the Messiah. And we can't believe he is because he doesn't live according to the way we live. And then one of them, verse 49, it says this, Caiaphas, being the high priest this year, says, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. Absolutely amazing, and not the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say in his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Absolutely amazing that he says this death of Jesus, he needs to die so the nation doesn't. And guess what? He was right. He was right. Jesus needed to die so the nation wouldn't. Why? Because the nation was already dead in their sins. And, and, and if he died, they would no longer be dead in their sins. Now, he didn't say this because he knew what he was saying. He said it because he was the high priest. And God says, I'm going to honor the position, not the man. And God honors the position of the high priest. He allows him to prophesy. But this is what happens. So we look to this and we realize it's the children of Israel, the leadership that plots the death of Jesus Christ. Now, do me a favor. Back up in your Bible to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. And in Matthew chapter 26, because I want you to see who physically is involved in the death of Jesus Christ. Because it's not us. Spiritually, we have a place but we didn't initiate our sin nature. We weren't the ones who started the sin nature. It came through Adam. 
But in Matthew 26, the first three verses, it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, Now you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up and be crucified. Then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. You understand who's physically involved in the death of Jesus Christ? It's not us. It was the religious leaders. And not only the, the religious leaders, but when we look at Matthew 26, verse 14 and 15 and 16, it says, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Absolutely amazing. Not only were the religious leaders responsible for his death, but Judas, one of the twelve, also was the one responsible for his death. You could say this, Judas was the doeg. He was the one who said, hey, I want this guy gone. I, I, want, I want to give him over to you. And so we see that not only were the religious leaders, not only Judas, but then in Matthew chapter 27, look at what it says in verse 1 and 2. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So now we see who's religious. It says in verse 1, the chief priest, the elders of the people plotted to, against Jesus to put him to death. So there is this plot to say we need to get rid of Jesus. Well, they're responsible. In verse 11 of Matthew 27, it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, um, are you the king of the Jews? And he says to him, it's as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate says, do you hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered them not a word that the governor marveled greatly. Now, keep in mind that while he's before the governor, these religious leaders are just hounding him. He's guilty. He's bad. He's horrible. And the governor like, hey, settle down so I can hear what Jesus has to say. And he says nothing. Do you understand? He says absolutely nothing. And then in Matthew 27, verse 26, then he, this is Pontius Pilate, released Barnabas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, why does he do that? Well, remember, back in verse 22 of Matthew 27, Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who, will, who is called the Christ? And so they said to him, crucify him, let him be crucified. And the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. Absolutely amazing. They have only one thought on their mind. Kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him. Just like Saul did with the priest. That's what they want to do to the great high priest. Just kill him, kill him. So we can go about our lives. We can go about what we want to do. We don't want this man to rule over us. And so we see here absolutely amazing that when it all comes down to it, that now we see that it was, yes, the religious leaders, yes, also the, the nation of Israel, the people who are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. It was um, Judas, it was Pontius Pilate, but also 
In verse 27 of Matthew 27, it says, The soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the praetorium, gathered the whole garrison around them. They stripped him, put on a scarlet robe. When they twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, a reed on his, in his hand. They bowed the knee before him. They mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spat on him, took the reed, and struck him in the head. And when they mocked him, they took the robe off of him. They put his own clothes on him. They led him away to be crucified. Now, as they came out, keep in mind, it's the... The, the, the Roman soldiers, verse 27, then the soldiers, we haven't changed that. The soldiers led him out. They found a man, a Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled him to bear his cross. And when they'd come to the place of Golgotha, that is say the place of the skull, there they gave him sour wine to, and mingled with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink anything. Then they crucified him. Roman soldiers. Who was physically involved in the death of Jesus Christ? Well, the bottom line is, is what? Well, we know, according to Scripture, that it was the chief priest, it was the Pharisees, it was the elders, all the religious rulers, it was Judas, it was Pilate, it was the Romans. They were all physically involved. But then you come to Peter's teaching in Acts, and I want to share with you a portion of Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, let me just read this to you. Well, first I'm going to back it up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the first one. In verse 22 um, through 24, it makes this statement, Peter speaking. But in Acts 2, verse 23 and 24, it says, Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purposes and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. Think about this for just a second. Gravitate to what I just said. Peter makes this statement, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. I want you to understand, God the Father allowed Jesus to die. God the Father said, I'm going to be a part of this. So spiritually, he recognizes what was going on. What does God the Father do? He sends Jesus to Jerusalem, even though he knows what the chief priests have already counseled. Say, we got to do it secretly. When it comes to the feast, let's grab him. Let's, let's kill him. Let's, let's wipe him out. And so there's a plot. The Father knows the plot. The father understands the plot. Jesus knows it. He knows Judas is going to betray him. He says, hey, one of you betrays me. Go do what you have to do. He allows himself to be taken. He allows himself to be crucified. Do you understand what happens? God the Father's in on this. And as we see this, not only does he say God the Father determined, but then he says this to the people, you have taken, verse 23, by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death whom God raised up. He actually blames the people. And there in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, it says this, The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. Remember, who do you want? Barnabas? No, 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 not Barnabas. Let Barnabas, this murderer, go. I am denying Jesus Christ. Crucify him, crucify him. And so he says, listen, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of Life, to whom God raised up, to whom we are witnesses. I want you to understand, who was the one who physically killed Jesus Christ? In chapter 4, verse 10 of Acts, he says, Let it be known to you all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you whole. This is absolutely amazing to see what begins to be transpired here. That with all these people who are now part of the physical death of Jesus Christ. 
So where do we stand in? Before I look to us, let's look to one other passage that I want you to see. Turn to John chapter 10 for just a moment. In John chapter 10, beginning in verse 11, this is Jesus as he begins to speak. And as he begins to speak, he, he makes this statement. John 10, beginning in verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I love that. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what? He gives his life for the sheep. He gives. He, he doesn't, isn't taken. He gives. He gives his life. And he says, but a hireling who is not the shepherd, the one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and, and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. And the hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known by them. As a father knows me, even so I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep which I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and they will be there will be one flock and one shepherd therefore my father loves me because i lay down my life that i may take it up again no one verse 18 note this no one verse 18 takes it from me who killed jesus no one takes his life they're all part of, of physically allowing him to die but Jesus says, no one takes my life, but I lay down, I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. This command I've received from my father. Wow. Keep in mind that we had a, a part spiritually in the death. We had no part physically in the death. Who really had the part? There's a lot of people that played parts, but Jesus said, I lay it down. No one takes my life. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? Father, forgive them for what? They know not what they do. They thought they knew what they were doing, but they didn't. And he says, listen, this is my choice, your determined counsel that I go to the cross because when I go to the cross, the curse is taken away. Curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. When I go to the cross and I shed my blood, all their sin is forgiven. I will be separated. I will say, Eli, Eli, Lama and my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To understand that this trinity that has been knit as one, perfect in love and unity for all eternity, now for three hours is shredded, ripped apart. And Jesus is so like, I can't experience you. I'm not feeling you. And he was terrified. This is why I said, Father, be Father, let this cup pass from me. Let me not experience aloneness from you. God said it has to happen because if you're separated, they can be knit. And, and I love what happens is because what we see here is we, we contrast, contrast God's word to Adam where he says, there's going to be death. Jesus says to us, there can be life. And, and I love what happens because the communion is designed, it's designed for you to look at the body and the blood, the death of Jesus. It's not designed for you to look at, at, at yourself. It's designed to, for you to look at him. I want to read you the portion from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, where Paul said, I've received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And then it declares this. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It says, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You proclaim victory. 
Ellie comes. And, and I think this is the heart. This is what we see because when we recognize this, who was responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? Well, we have a little bit spiritually, but even that we were given the sin nature. And so what was it us? What was it? Was it the nation of Israel? Was it the, the chief priest? Was it the children of Israel? Was it Pilate? Was it Judas? Was it the, the Roman soldiers or the father? Or was it Jesus? And keep in mind that the Jesus wants us to know one thing about his death. No one takes it from me. I lay it down willingly. Why? Because I love the sheep. I love the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. And I will give my life for the sheep because those that are separated can now be one with us. And so amazingly, what we see is this. Communion is not designed for us to morbidly have an introspection of, oh, my sin, my sin, my sin. I've caused the death. I've caused the death. Communion is designed literally to say, look at the benefits that you have. The benefits, you are loved. When you take his body, which is broken, you take the blood that, that paid for your sins. Do you know why his body was broken? Do you know why he went to the cross? Because he loved. Do you know why that he shed his blood to forgive us of our sins? Because he loved. And if he shed his blood and was separated, we would never have to be. And this is the reality of what we see. God allowed Jesus to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the reality of everything that we now come to. There's a passage, let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It declares this of the Lord and Jesus Christ. For he, the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know what the benefit you have? You might become the righteousness of God. When you take communion... What you're saying is this, when you, oh, I've sinned, I've sinned, I've sinned, I've sinned. Yes, you sinned. You're part of it spiritually. There, there, there was a sense, but what you're doing communion is saying this, I now have the benefit of what? Righteousness. I'm now taking the righteous body of Christ and I'm putting it in me. I'm now taking the blood of, of Christ that washes away all sin that makes me as white as snow and I'm putting it in me. I now stand before him whole and forgiven. You understand it's a celebration. May we come to this place where we come to this understanding of truly what communion is. Father, we are so grateful for your word, so grateful for your heart, so grateful of all you do. We are asking, Lord, that, that through this word and, and through us taking communion, that you would come and knit our hearts to you, that you would, Father, just reveal to us how good you are, what it is that you have done. That when we come to communion, it isn't an introspection of our sin. It is truly a celebration that, that we have no sin, that we have righteousness. And so, Father, come and do the work in our hearts. Let us walk not in the lies of the enemy, but in the truth of your word. Let us walk in the victory, Jesus, that you have brought about for us. The battle was the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. And you, Lord, are victorious. You are the deliverer. You are the redeemer. So we come into this place celebrating you. So knit our hearts to you in this truth. We ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, amen. amen.